0: So, that's it. said, uh, we had our first one on one class um, Sunday, and uh, um, believe it or not, some of the people who already come and listen to me talk for way too long actually showed up again to listen to me ramble for like 90 minutes of um, their own free will. I didn't even pay them, which is crazy people. Um, but we actually had a good time, um, and I'm excited about the next three classes because we just barely stuck our toes in the water this last week, so I'm really excited to where we're going. With this, we're going to get into some really fun stuff. But um, while I was rambling kind of endlessly, uh, I talked just a little bit about kind of my conversion um, to Christianity uh, and how, when I look back, sometimes it can be hard to see that exact moment when um, when I would say this is the moment uh, that that I got saved. Like I, I've got moments where I grew more and more committed to Christ. There was definitely a moment where. Um, I answered like an altar call and, and prayed a prayer, but I definitely saw God moving in my life even before that. And, and there were times after that that I, I took an even um, you know, deeper commitment uh, in my walk with Christ. And so I, I have a hard time looking back and going, this is the exact moment I got saved. To me, it feels like a journey. It feels like a process that started crazy early and then just continues to grow deeper and deeper and deeper. And that can make some people uncomfortable because of some of the metaphors we use to talk about it. "Born again," like that, speaks of an exact, specific moment or, or uh, passing from darkness to light. Like we, we have these metaphors that make it feel like it happens in the exact moment. For some people, it absolutely does. But for others, it feels like a journey, and that can make it hard to talk about sometimes. Um, and I certainly don't have a problem with the, the, the single moment thing. You, know, you know, I definitely I answer an old call, ran to the front prayed. The prayer they told me to pray, you know, and uh, and and did all that. So I'm very familiar with that process. But um, uh, but I can, like I say, look back and see moments before that where I know for a fact God was already at work in my life, um, and it was only you know later that I that I realized it. At the time, it just felt normal. I looked back later and I like, oh my gosh, God was you know totally functioning in my life, you know, even before I got saved, if you want to call that. Um, so, so a lot of times there's a there's a this process we look back on that's kind of hard to articulate. Um, but for instance, like the, one of the most like God moments in my life was this totally um, bizarre like if you wouldn't think of it as a God moment. I uh, um, I grew up um, uh, a thief, actually. Um, used to shoplift a lot. I had like a racket at school where people would bring me a shopping list. And I'd say, yeah, I can get you that for about 25 bucks. And they'd be like, all right. So I'd go in and and uh, and I had a whole routine. I'd hit Kmart. Anybody remember Kmart? Kmart was what we had in our town. So I'd hit Kmart and I would, uh, um, and I would run through and just, you know, get my whole shopping list, go back and swap it for 25 bucks, you know. Um, music was my big one. I'm pretty sure, you guys remember... Uh, um, cassette tapes, millennials. Cassette tapes were these things that it was about the size of a phone, and we could get like sixty minutes of music on that sucker. It was amazing, um, but they were great because the height of love was when you would put all your favorite love songs on one cassette tape and give it to somebody, and, you know, give them a mixtape. That was the that was the real thing. Um, but I'm pretty sure I, you remember when they started putting the cassette tapes in those big plastic like things. I'm, I think I might have been responsible for that because I. I would take so much music, and then I, that was in the height of my, like, shoplifting days when I switched over to that. And I was like, ooh, they're on to me. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so I had this this whole thing. Well, I had gotten myself into a jam in my life. And like any good Catholic, I went to God to negotiate a way out. And so in my kind of superstitious thing, I was like, oh, my God, if you'll get me out of this jam, I will stop stealing. You know, and we, we had our dicker and... I felt like he agreed I agreed we knew, it, we knew the, the terms of the agreement and, and I kid you not I, I pray this prayer I, I will never steal again if you'll just get me out of this jam and the very next morning 12 hours later I'm out of the jam like and I was like ooh like, okay I gotta keep my part and so I stopped stealing and I did and it really hurt my bank account but I I gave it up and uh, and um, and uh, for about six months and, um, and about six months later, uh, over a stupid thing, um, I went to steal something uh, for a buddy. He wanted something. I was like, Ah, don't pay for that. I'll get it. You know. And uh, and my moves were flawless. Like I was smooth. I was in and out. And I got one step outside the store and got busted. And uh, and I knew the second I heard those words, "Excuse me, sir," I was like, Whoa. God is watching. Like, and I didn't even, didn't even hesitate. I was like, yeah, no, 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 this is right. Like, I, I know what's, I know what's going on. This God person is not a philosophical concept. He is a person, and he does not play games. <laughs> like, and for, the, for some reason in my life, as I'm sitting, walking back to the security section at the back of Kmart. I'm having this God moment, like, oh my God is real, like, and and when you make a deal, He sticks to His end. Like, it was a very, very real moment for me with God. He does not play around. And even though I wasn't praying the sinner's prayer or like giving my life to God anyway, that from that point on, my relationship with God was changed. Like, I no longer prayed to this entity in the universe somewhere. I knew I was talking to God, and I knew He was hearing me. And so something dramatically changed in my relationship with God in that moment. I lived every day as though God were now real. Because I broke mine to the deal and he did not break his. Um, so that was a real conversion moment for me. Was it like a salvation moment? No. But it was a conversion moment. Like there was a moment when God moved from theoretical to personal. I knew he was a personal God who hears my prayers and who, um, and who answers Uh, When you call, so something very real changed in my life in that moment. I had a run-in with God, and in my head, He was the God who is watching. Like, like if I were to put one of those Old Testament names where they have something, they like name God, the God who is watching me. Like He became the God who is watching me because I knew, you know, I knew that I nailed that 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 steal. Like I knew it was perfect, like it was flawless, and I still got busted. And I was like, holy cow, He's watching. So he became the God who's watching me. And, uh, and I don't think anything in the world um, could have made me answer that altar call later that year, other than that. I, later that year, when, when they said, you know, explain to me who this Jesus was and, and the kind of role he wanted to have in my life, I answered immediately. And the reason I did was because I already knew this God is personal. No way! I'd answer that altar call if I hadn't had that running with God and that deep desire to, to be reconnected with Him because I felt like I'd blown my end of the deal. So for years, I had a hard time nailing down the exact moment I got saved, you know, per se. When I think of the, the metaphor of birth and light breaking through darkness, I didn't have that exact experience. As mine felt like a journey. And Honestly, I've gotten to uh, uh, better identifying specific moments when. When uh, when Jesus um, kind of stepped in my life in kind of a new and interesting way, but um, but but I've gr- I've grown very confident in my salvation for sure, and I've learned to kind of own the entire process and, and embrace the entire journey toward God. And and for uh, the next four weeks, we're going to be working through a book that's very similar to that. This is, we're going to, we're going to study through the book of Ruth in the Old Testament as both. Kind of a historical book because uh, there's some fun history um, for, the, for the time in there. But also as this kind of allegorical book of, of the way the journey to salvation often works. Um, according to Jewish rabbis, this is a prophetic book. This is not a history book. This is a, this is a prophetic book, um, which we'll talk about. But, um, but, uh, but we're going to look at this as an allegory of the journey of salvation. Um, because here's the deal. we're really good at talking about the theology of salvation. We're really good at talking about um, maybe the mechanisms of salvation, exactly what Jesus did to purchase our salvation, and exactly what was purchased and exactly what we have to do to to appropriate that in our lives. I like mean we, we we talk a lot about the theology of it, but um not so much about you know the story of it, the narrative of it, the way it it happens um, in our lives because it can it can be pretty broad. Um, but there's something absolutely uh, beautiful about the ridiculous, serendipitous chain of events um, that God uses to draw us to Him. Um, and those are never as clean and neat as theology. There's always a million little things that fall into place that draw us to God. Um, and it can usually only be understood in the context of the full story. Like, you really can't speak of it in in just abstract theological terms. You have to embrace the story to really get it. Um, And I think the the book of Ruth is a brilliant example of this. So here are my hopes. Um, What I'm really hoping is that we can kind of each see ourselves playing all the roles in this story at different moments. Um, Ruth, uh, who is uh, kind of actively on the journey towards salvation, um, as we're going to find out in this book. There's also Naomi, who's kind of her guide who kind of leads her back to the people of God, if you want to say that? Um, we have the Jewish community with all of its liturgies and rituals and uh, and, and structure that kind of open the door of salvation to Ruth. We're going to talk about that, and then we have this Boaz character who who is Ruth's savior. Um, and, and he always, whenever we talk about the book of Ruth Kind of is this symbolic figure of Christ He's a kinsman, a redeemer It's kind of a beautiful um, piece of the Jewish narrative um, Who kind of speaks of the saving character So we kind of have these amazing allegories And none of us are going to be Boaz. None of us get to be savior. Um, although I've given it my best shot a few times Still can't get anybody to own it But, you know, whatever um, But but all the other roles, I think we, all, we can all step into those at times. And so I'm hoping we can see ourselves, not just from the protagonist standpoint, but in all of the roles in this story, that we find ourselves in the story of God. So we're going to start with the text. I'm going to be reading chapter 1 of Ruth. Um, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, if not, the words will be on the screen. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab taking his wife and his two sons with him. A man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi, and their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephraites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other named Ruth. About ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died. They left Naomi alone with her Without her two sons or her husband. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters in law got ready to leave Moab and return to her homeland. With her two daughters in law, she set out for the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters in law, "Uh, Go back to your mother's homes and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we, uh, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters. Return to your parents' homes for I too am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to marry tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sisters-in-law have gone back to her people. And her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, Don't ask me to leave you or turn back. Where you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. is it really Naomi, the woman said. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer? and The Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. So this is a a pretty um, familiar story right now in our church. Um, Have you ever had one of those stretches when just everything falls apart at once? (laughs) And I know a lot of people get that. I mean, sometimes bad things happen, and as much as Um, You believe it couldn't get any worse. Um, All of a sudden, almost like your enemy takes that as a direct challenge, um, worse and worse happens. It just keeps getting worse. Um, And if you've experienced this, and obviously I'm speaking a little bit tongue-in-cheek because I know that uh, many in our church are going through this. Um, But if you've ever experienced that, uh, this chapter feels very familiar. This chapter feels... Um, like something uh, akin to real life. Um, So let's walk through this. First, you don't leave your home and move to a foreign country where you are um, an immigrant uh, if things aren't very, very bad. Um, So obviously, the story starts out bad. Things are not good for Elimelech and Naomi and their sons, for them to have to uproot from their home um, and travel to another land and be um, kind of the, the... Look down upon in that land just so you can live. Um, the story starts off rough. Uh, I mean, a like lives in the promised land. He lives in, in the, the, the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and, uh, and claimed uh, with, through Joshua. And, and, and he lives in the place they had dreamed of and he has to leave. Things were so bad, he has to leave. Um, he has his people. He has Torah. Um, which we're going to learn about in the next few weeks. He has the kind of structures that Torah created that were good. Um, but things get bad for him and his family, and they have to leave. Um, so they packed up. They moved to a neighboring nation, and El- Elimelech and Naomi become immigrants in the land of Moab, um, which means things had to have been pretty rough. And then on top of that, not long after they moved there, Elimelech dies, um, leaving Naomi alone with her two sons. She's now a widow. Um, we don't really know how old uh, Malon and Kilion are when Elimelech like, dies, but we know that Naomi uh, now is uh, not only a foreigner in a foreign land, but she's a widow raising two boys um, who depend on her. Uh, so this is not an easy road um, for Naomi. But Naomi, uh, her sons get married, and she gets two daughters-in-law, and uh, and they were married about ten years. So She's kind of the widowed mother-in-law for about 10 years when both of her sons died. So this is just too much. Like, uh, if, if you read this book and, and, and you just are trying to pull the theology out of it and you don't read the real human characters, you kind of miss this book. I mean, this lady is going through hell. Um, we have a tendency to focus hard also on Naomi's loss here. Um, she's been married for uh, but or but we sometimes forget that Ruth is also a widow. Um she's been married for ten years, um, you know to, um, to her husband, and now she is um, a widow living with her mother-in-law and her now widowed sister-in-law. And uh, kind of into this desperate situation, Naomi hears that her hometown um, is kind of uh, the economy's good, things are things are good. And she decides she wants to go home. Um, maybe the government's dumping stimulus money on everybody or something. And, and, uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's free money. So why not, why not go home, don't the joke. Um, but things, <laughs> things were better back home. So Naomi decides that Moab is, is not good for her. She's going back to Bethlehem. She's going home. Um, and, uh, and completely recognizing the terrible situation her daughter in laws are in. Um. She sets them free, which she didn't have to, but she decides to to set them free where they can hopefully marry new husbands and and build a new life. Um, Orpah goes home, um, but Ruth decides not to leave um, Naomi. She kind of makes this gorgeous declaration, don't ask me to leave you or turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Um, wherever you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if, I'm, uh, if I allow anything but death to separate us. And honestly, Naomi might have continued and insisted Ruth leave, but um, I think this vow that she makes at the end is pretty real. The Jews took that very seriously when you say, may the Lord punish me if. Like It's like me making that deal with God. You, you uh, God holds his end to those. I think Naomi was probably like, oh, now you said it, you know all right, come on. Um, so she takes her. May the Lord punish me. Um, and uh, so Naomi knows that you don't mess around with those kind of statements. And so she she takes Ruth with her to the promised land um, in Israel. And this effort kind of closes with this really surreal exchange in Bethlehem um, that I've actually experienced a time or two. I'm actually pretty familiar with this where it says, so the two women continued their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is this really Naomi? The woman asked, don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, um, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer, and the Almighty has sent me such tragedy? Um, this uh, The text says that the town was, was excited um, by their uh, uh, arrival to see Naomi. And if you've ever suffered tragedy, um, you know what it's like um, when when this kind of invisible presence called grief um, is the biggest thing in, in your life and it feels weird that somehow everyone else is acting normal. Like that's there's this funny surreal thing where you're like, My life is currently shaped by this thing that no one else can see. And they're acting like life is going on. And I don't understand that. So it's like they're excited. Naomi comes walking in, like dragging herself in Everybody's like, Naomi! And she's like, not right now. This is not the way I want to to deal with this. Um, They just continue with their lives, experiencing it uh, as as often. And it's kind of weird because sometimes that can be, like, offensive to you. Like... You're like that, people are just going on with their lives and acting normal. And Naomi does what many of us have done; she lashes out, and she's like, "Don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. Mara means bitter. Like just call me bitter, you know, and kind of spews her uh, her pain on a bunch of unsuspecting and innocent people." As I've experienced, I've been on both sides of that. I've been the one spewing the pain. Um, I had a a moment. I'm going to say this the way I said it, so I'm sorry. I went to a – me and us' life was falling apart. And so I went to this men's group at the church we were at at the time. And they were reading this book. um, It was uh, uh, one of the wild-at-heart type books. And and everybody's talking about the names people give you and that you don't have to wear those names. Maybe your dad calls you lazy or maybe your wife calls you you – and how you don't have to live under those names. And and it's this really (laughs) encouraging environment. And everybody's, you know, we're like, it's like a support group thing. Like, you know, my dad always said this, and I'm realizing that I don't have to be that anymore. And everybody's really encouraging each other. And we're sitting in a circle, and it's a pretty big circle, a lot of guys. But it's really thick, rich, syrupy, encouraging atmosphere. And it gets around to me, and I'm just kind of sitting there. Eating. And I was like, oh, man, this is going to get recorded. We're being authentic with you, though. I was like, um, it's what happens when everybody thinks you're awesome, but you know you're an asshole. And there's dead silence in the room. For like two minutes. Like nobody nobody can think of anything to say. Finally, the pastor, who's there, goes, So moving on. That's how we got out of it. There was like literally no... And it was, and I felt like Naomi. Like, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. like Like, it was just all of my pain just... Just dumped it on a bunch of a room full of people that were completely un, like they're just loving on each other and, and encouraging each other, and I'm just like, Bleh! just vomited my pain on them, you know. Which is what's happening in this story. Like Naomi's hurting, and everybody's like, oh, we're so glad you're home, and Bleh! just you know, vomits all of her pain on them. And and, and some of us have had that happen to us, and we're like, jeez touchy, you know? Yeah, don't do that. Like just, people need space to hurt. They need space to, to lose it every once in a while when they're in pain, and we have to give them the space to do that. Um, so by the end of this chapter, um, Naomi and Ruth are back in Israel at the time of the harvest. It's spring, and this is the time of the barley harvest. Now, what I'd like to do here is, as we look at this um, story is first set up the, the, the setting just a little bit, both historically and um, the kind of the literary setting. Um, So we're going to do a little bit of nerd work, and then I'd like to see um, if we can kind of parallel this first chapter um, uh, and hopefully eventually this entire book with the journey of salvation that many of us are familiar with. Um, And hopefully as we unpack this story, we'll find ourselves um, in the story of God. But um, this book opens with this very loaded statement. Um, In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, um, there's a lot actually in that funny little statement. Um, This opening um, tells us some very important information about the whole narrative. Um, First, it sets the approximate date of the story, so we kind of know when the story happens now, which actually there's a genealogy at the end that would would have kind of placed it for us anyway. Um, But the bigger thing, the more important thing, is this tells us that the story is being recorded quite a while later. This is not a journal. This is not somebody journaling what happened in their life. You don't say back in the days when the judges ruled if you're still in the days when the judges ruled. So this is, you know, it'd be like back when America was a free nation. Hold on, what did you say? (laughs) You know, um, it means something dramatically has now changed. So this is clearly written after the judges no longer ruled. So this is written maybe in the days of David because David is actually mentioned at the end of the story. Um, Or maybe some uh, Jewish uh, scholars even believe it was probably written in the the Babylonian captivity. Or rewritten. They took a a story and they rewrote it. um, Something everybody was familiar with. And they rewrote it um, with some things at the beginning and the end. So, to say uh, back when the judges ruled means this is after that. So, this is the retelling of a story for, for a particular reason. This is not just writing clean history as it's happening this is looking back on something and telling it for a reason um and this is important because several weeks ago I kind of explained the, the way the Jewish Bible uh, was originally composed um that the, the they don't call it the Old Testament Jews don't because they don't have a New Testament so they just call it the Bible or the real word they use the Tanakh they call it the Tanakh um which is an acronym for Torah um Nevi'im and Ketuvim, so it's three three groups of books. When you put them all together, all three groups, you call it a Tanakh. TN uh, for Torah, N uh, N M or N A N V something like that, um, and then K K M for uh, Ketuvim. And Ruth, um, ironically, is in the, the, the Nebuchadnezzar, in the prophetic books. So Jews consider Ruth a prophetic book, not a historical book. Some of their just plain histories are actually in the Ketuvim, in the writings. The word Ketuvim means writing. The Nebuchadnezzar is the prophets. And Ruth is in the prophetic books. It's actually not considered a history. We read it like it's history. The Jewish um, readers would read it like it's prophecy, like it was a, a prophetic book. Book, um, and the reason is uh, because when they were in captivity, um, they had this tension between this tension. People make fun of me because every time I say tension, I, I do this funny thing with my hands. Um, they, had the, yeah, they had this tension between um, the promises God had made to David that you're going to have an heir who sits on the throne forever, and the fact that we're in we're in captivity with no king. Like, and those two things don't match. And they're trying to figure that out. And so pretty much everything about David's life becomes part of this prophetic story that God cannot be done with us. Even though we're in captivity, God cannot be done with us because he made promises through David. And so everything became about David. So um, to a Jew in captivity, the fact that God had promised this heir was very, very important. So every story that has to do with David becomes part of this prophetic line that, that means we are going to get out of captivity. So it's they need this prophetic thread um, to, to answer why we're in this place and what's going to happen next. Um, so this book actually serves in the Jewish Old Testament as a piece of David's lineage because we find out Ruth is actually David's great-great-great-great-grandma or something. She, she actually gives birth to somebody who leads to David and ultimately to Jesus. So Ruth is part of this thread which makes this part of that prophetic story. So to a Jew, this is a this is actually a prophecy book. But but the thing I love most about it, finding out that that it happens in this book of Judges, is that throughout this entire book, this is a, a chaotic and tumultuous book, the book of Judges. It's this crazy um, book where even the good guys aren't very good. Like and and the, and the more you read it, the more you're like. I don't know if I should root for this guy or not. Like, he's barely following God. Like, and, and yet God seems to be using to deliver his people. It's a, it can be a very, very confusing book. Um, but in, uh, and, and in that book, there's this repeating theme that happens over and over and over again where it says, and in those days there was no king in Israel. Like, it happens four or five times. Um, I think I put four of them up there. Um, where, where they would tell some stories, and then it would go, on. in those days, there was no king in Israel. Almost like the book of Judges, because the book of Judges is also in, in the Ketuvim. It's also, or the Nebuchadnezzar. It's also considered prophecy, um, because it's telling the story of what it was like before David. What it was like before there was a king, before there was an heir um, to David's throne. And so it's this real story of this kind of ungodly period in Jewish history. And it's really kind of a disastrous time. There was, there was civil war in Israel. There was, um, there was deliverers who did terrible, terrible things and barely obeyed God at all. There was slaughter. There was sin and wickedness that people were uh, abandoning God right and left. So Ruth kind of serves as this beautiful, shining light in the middle of this incredibly dark time. To find out that this book of Ruth happens in the middle of this really dark book called Judges um, is kind of beautiful. And I love so much when I read it because um, in Judges, you move from kind of one big personality to another, just from judge to judge to judge. And there are these kind of larger-than-life characters sometimes who do these crazy things, Gideon and killing, you know, 30,000 enemies with, with like, 300 men and, you know, this crazy big moments and then Gideon like makes a gold statue to himself like in your like terrible you know not a great role model you know but delivers God's people and so it's this really weird dark book that kind of plays out like one of those mature rated HBO series like it's gross too. Like I used, to, my boy used to love it. Like read the one where the guy's hand goes all the way into the king's gut when he stabs it. Like my boy used to love the blood and guts in the Book of Judges. Like there's a guy named Ehud who stabs an enemy king so hard that his entire hand and wrist go into the king's belly. Like it's, ugh. like and then there's another one. <laughs> I forget the guy's name, but uh, he uh, he's running and the woman's like hide in my tent. And so, he hides in her tent, and he's so tired he takes a nap. And she drives a tent peg through his temple, it pins him to the ground. Like, and seriously, think about how many of you are, are willing to actually do that, or likely to like, like while someone's sleeping, hold a tent peg over their head and smack it with a hammer. Like, brutal, brutal book. In the midst of this brutality, where everything is awful, and even the good guys aren't good guys. You have this story of God setting up His future king. You have this while, while while everybody's up here in this big chaotic thing. You have this little tiny backstory of Ruth and and God's interest. This love story, really, it's a love story, and God connecting two people and making them fall in love because He's got a plan down the road. It's this really beautiful picture of of while everything is. Is going to hell, for lack of a better way of putting it, like literal hell on earth, you have God setting things up and 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 just making a man meet a woman because he's got a plan for their heir. Like, it's, it's this really beautiful kind of bright spot in this otherwise dark era. So I love that he opens it up, that, hey, this gorgeous love story between Ruth and Boaz happens during the Judges. Like, that's the way a Jew would read it. Like, this happened during the Judges, like when, when everything was falling apart, God was still moving in this beautiful and gorgeous way. So, um, so what I like to do with this story is just maybe um, as we as we realize where this is happening and what's going on, um, also uh, see some of the similarities between our stories and Naomi and Ruth's story, and then maybe um, use that to see. The, maybe how the ordinary situations in life um, can 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 be seen as more extraordinary. That, that it's in the everyday ordinary that some of this amazing, gorgeous stuff happens. So the first thing I want to point out is that Naomi and Ruth meet in Moab, which is kind of a big deal. Um, as we're looking at this story kind of with the eye toward the allegorical, um, please know that Naomi will naturally represent the people of God. She's a Jew. She's one of the, the people of God. She, she is one of the people that the Torah was given to, the promises were given to. She is uh, on the inside, if you want to call that. She's an heir of Abraham and the covenant that God made with Moses and his people. Naomi's one of those. She's on the inside. Ruth will naturally represent the unsaved. She's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. She's on the outside, as, as things were back then. She's a Moabite. Um, other than than, than, uh, than what she picked up from her husband and from Naomi for ten years, she knows nothing about the God of Israel. She knows nothing about Torah. She she's the uh, she's the outsider. Um, she's your coworker who doesn't know Jesus. She's she's your neighbor who doesn't go to church anywhere. She's the, the family member who walked away from God um, completely and anything that resembles the church institution. Like that's that's Ruth in the story um, and in this story these two women fall in love with each other like they they form a relationship a bond um, between them not in Israel not in the the house of God not in church but in Moab we talked last week about kind of the two different ways you can look at church as the place where you drag people in so ministry can happen or the place where the people of God gather to get lifted up and be encouraged and blessed and healed so that they can go out into Moab, into the world and do ministry. That's what's going on here. These two meet and connect and fall in love in Moab. So this is not something that happens in in the promised land, in church if you want to call it that. If we're looking allegorical, this happens out there. Okay, this relationship forms out there. Um, so allegorically, this is, this is not what's going on here. This is what happens um, in Moab. Um, Now, by the end of the chapter, Ruth makes kind of her amazing declaration. Where where you go, I'll go. Where you live, I'll live. Where you die, I'll die. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. So Ruth definitely joins the team. Like, she's on. Like, I'm in this. Um, Only because of a relationship she built. That's the ironic thing here. She's not necessarily joining herself to God yet, per se, She's not overwhelmed by the evidence of Jesus at this point yet. She has bound herself to Naomi, which is which is interesting. So my second point is, and this can make some people a little uncomfortable, um, is that, spoiler alert, we're going to get a couple chapters ahead, but Boaz steps into the story as the kind of allegorical Jesus character, the Savior. He saves really both ladies, um, but in chapter 1, Ruth makes her amazing declaration and devotion not to Boaz, but to Naomi, which, uh, which I think allegorically is important. I think this happens more than we realize. Usually, when you invite someone to church um, and they actually come, it's not because they're madly in love with Jesus or they're caught up in the, even the church itself. It's because they like you, it's because they see something in you, it's because they, you've treated them right and they, 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 they want whatever it is you have. Like this is the uh, it's not because you've made a great sales pitch on how you're amazing your your church is usually if they come it's because they like us they're they generally attached to you long before they attach to Jesus um, which I think it's important to recognize that and to and to own it they feel um, that you're normal or, or nice or down to earth or just a good example of kindness or whatever. There's something about us, when we live like Jesus, that draws them. Paul said it this way, follow me as I follow Christ. Sometimes that's where people start. They don't start following Christ, they start following you. And that's okay. But it also uh, puts some pressure on us. It makes us uncomfortable to say out loud sometimes, but usually someone comes to church because they're following you. And and, and and you've been a good example and they want to follow that example. Like I say, we don't like to say that out loud. Like, we're oh, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. Yeah, but, but usually in a real-life situation, people get attached to people. They come because of us. Um, and that's what happens in the book of Ruth. Um, I think this is uh, really important to recognize because um, when we own the reality that all the roots of the world... Um, are likely to attach themselves to us as Naomi before Boaz or Jesus, um, it means that we have to actually be nice to people. Novel concept, you know. Like, if if Naomi treats Ruth like garbage, if Naomi, you know, it's the stereotypical mother-in-law that I like to tell jokes about. I've got a great mother-in-law, but I just love mother-in-law jokes. Um, uh, When Naomi, you know, if she treats... Ruth terribly when Naomi tries to free Orpha and Ruth and Ruth splits, never meets Boaz, never as David. Like what happens to the to the to the narrative thread of the whole gospel story? It's crazy to think, and I am granted God is big and 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 sovereign and he works things out. I get that. But if we're just treating it like a narrative, it's crazy to think that if that the whole gospel story, including David and David's heir, Jesus, that leads to our salvation hinges on how well Naomi treats Ruth. If Naomi treats Ruth like crap, what happens to the rest of the story? So Naomi's kindness to Ruth, whatever happened in these two women's life, that she treated Ruth well, and Ruth was like, I am not leaving your side. Whatever happened in that relationship leads to the rest of the story, which I think is just gorgeous. How we treat people matters. It actually matters. Our kindness, our, like, uh, doing what we say we're going to do, having integrity, those things matter. And they can affect the real story of someone's eternity. And I think Doug, I think that's really important to recognize in this story that, that everything Ruth becomes and the, and the weight that this story eventually carries when you realize that this is how David's line continued and led to David, which ultimately leads to Christ, all hangs on the relationship of two women there are no small relationships. They all, they're huge and heavyweight, and the way we treat people matters. So, Naomi's kindness also, we know, wasn't fake. This wasn't just, you know, Naomi kind of uh, leveraging, you know, I'm stuck with the person I have to be kind. She's actually looking out for Ruth's best interests She finds out there's, there's food. Um, she knows she's going to go back a widow, and she's going to live on, you know, widow's kind of, rashes or whatever. So she wants to set Naomi free or Ruth free. She wants to. She wants to do what's best for Ruth. She's actually looking out for Ruth's best interest. It's not self pity. It's not a ploy. Naomi is actually looking out for her daughters in law. Um, obviously, Naomi's life is going to be harder without them. I mean, she'd have it easier with them, which we do find out um, when they get back to Israel. It's easier having Ruth there. Um, but if we if we if we want to treat this allegorically. and and we're seeing ourselves as the Naomi character when we go out into our workplaces we go out into the world we go out into Moab and and we want to be like Naomi we have to actually care about people we don't just leverage them to try and get them to come to church they're not just a number hey I got another person invited to church we're going to grow this place like no 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 we have to actually care about them we have to actually want what's best for them we only invite invite them to church if we truly feel like like our church is going to be good for them and that you know Naomi's like hey I understand I could really use you in my life right now, but I want you to have a good life. We're like, go. Oh, they need to find another husband. You know, she wants what's best for Ruth. And, if, and I'm telling you, if you meet somebody at work and you're like, probably not going to fit at our church, but maybe they'll fit at this church. Send them to that church. We don't just need to add people. We need people to be blessed and we need to love them and and, and do what's best for them. So, um, so people in our lives are real humans. We have to engage them at that level. Um, we shouldn't uh, We shouldn't just leverage our connection with them at work to invite more people to church. No, we need to be in real relationship with them, really loving them, and really wanting what's best for them. The only reason we should invite somebody is if we honestly believe 100% it's going to be good for them. And they need it. Um, that's when we... Uh, when we invite them, and that's the only reason we invite them. In this chapter, um, Naomi is only thinking about Ruth and what's good for Ruth's future and Ruth's story, and I think we have to have that as we engage um, people. And Ruth can sense that genuine love, because she does not want to leave it. She's like, where you go, I'm going to go. Where you die, I'm going to die. Like, I am connected to you, Um, and and it's beautiful. Um, And what makes me... uh, wonder is how on earth did these two women get this close and I think the answer is fairly obvious um, because they, it was tragedy, they went through tragedy together and I think that uh, bonds. us. Ruth lost a husband um, and a brother-in-law and a father-in-law uh, Naomi lost a husband and two sons these two women went through hell together um, and if you've ever gone through that with somebody, it's amazing the bonds that are forged there Um, And obviously, you know, when it's absolutely acute trauma, like Naomi and Ruth go through here, um, like so many people in our church have gone through recently, um, you don't really get to pick your trauma partners. You grab whoever's standing there, and and you don't let go. Um, You just hang on. And, And as we look at Naomi's life as kind of an example on our own, I think we can extract two things. First, don't be afraid to share your pain. Um, I'm I'm not suggesting you walk around just kind of vomiting your dirty laundry on everybody. That that happens to me a lot. It's the weirdest thing. I'll go into a store and I'll be like, "How you doing today?" And they're like, "Honestly, not great." And just <laughs> we went I went into Aldi's maybe three weeks ago, and she was like, "Honestly, they're turning off my electricity this afternoon. I'm hoping to get I'm gonna have to go a couple days without." before I get paid to get it turned back on but then my mom was helping me but now she's mad because she's not helping me and like it turned into this hole and I wound up giving her what money I had on me and was like walked out I was like Whoa. and Joshua my son was with me he was like well that was heavy I was like right and it happens to me all the time like Esther whenever Esther and I are together um, it's happened at Sam's a couple times Walmart a couple times I'll say something somebody will just dump their life and as we're walking out Esther's like just so you know never happens to me. That never happens to me. Nobody does that to me. I don't know what you do to invite that, but that never happens to me. But I'm not suggesting everybody that says, how you doing today? You just go, oh, and then you just vomit everything. But you got to find somebody to share your pain with. You have to find somebody to talk to, to be authentic with. When you're going through hell, don't fake it just to, just so everybody, you know, likes you or thinks you're great. Find somebody. Share your honestly your hurt and pain because some of the best relationships in the world are formed that way when you're authentic with somebody and they and they meet you there in it. So don't be afraid to share your hurts. And second, don't be afraid to step into someone else's pain. Don't be afraid to go there. If someone honors you with their story and it's a painful story, don't hesitate to meet them in the hurt. And, and be, You don't have to have the answers. You don't have to, you know, be able to get them out of it. Just meet them there and be with them In the thing. It will gut you. It will pull up everything you've ever been through that's hard. It'll pull it all right back up to the surface and it's painful and it's tough. You'll feel inadequate and powerless, I can promise you. Um, But you'll also find the deepest love you've ever known in that place. Like when you meet people in that place, um, that's where real love happens. I mean, I I love to preach, Um, it's one of my favorite things to do. Um, I have no idea. Why I'm allowed to stand up and just talk for 45 minutes? It's amazing. I love it. One of my I love the study that goes into it. I love writing my messages and crafting the way I want them to go. And um, even when I write a bad message, I love afterwards figuring out what I could have done better and, and kind of analyzing it. And yeah, I just love it. I love preaching, teaching. I also love kind of shaping the vision of the church. I love um, the tension, the tension um, between uh, the the things that we deeply believe. And, and want to see a part of the church, but also the things you know work. Things you know, if we want to do these things, we could grow a church. We know how to. And I love holding that tension between the two and going, like, even though we could do that, can we really believe these things and want to try really hard to hold on to them. Like, it's it's fun. It's fun to, to sit there and, and think about what you truly believe a church should look like. And even when you know you could do it a different way and, and be successful, no, we're going to hold on to this and it's going to, and you know, What we do grow is going to be deeper and more meaningful because of it, and that's really fun. I really like that piece. I love almost everything about being a pastor um, here at Open Table, but more than anything else, believe it or not, my favorite part of being a pastor are prayer times. I, 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 um, my prayer times are the one thing I never skip, even when we're on vacation when it hits Monday night, I, I, I get away, I go for a walk. This time I went down and sat by the bay on the dock and prayed for a couple hours and and uh, um, Monday night hit on a Christmas Eve a couple years ago and I went out on Christmas Eve and prayed. Like, I don't miss my prayer times because um, I am I am honored that people share their prayer requests with me. Like, something about people sharing what they're stressed about and anxious about and hurting about, I don't take that lightly. Like, I'm honored to get to help carry that load, even if it's just for a few minutes. And um, and one of the reasons I'm moving to uh, Tuesdays and Thursday mornings because I want to do it twice, and I don't have many more evenings to give. So I'm moving it to early morning. I'm not a morning person, although I've been having no trouble getting up at five. It's like I wake up excited to go um, pray, which is weird. But prayer is my favorite part of this job because. Um, because that's where people's hurts are. That's where people's stress is. That's where people's anxieties are. And 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 I can't tell you how close I feel to you when I'm praying for you. It's the weirdest thing. A lot of times I'll text somebody afterwards because I'm like I feel incredibly connected to people when I'm and and it's heavy because people text them heavy things. Like and I sometimes all I can send back is, ugh I will pray. Like I wish I could say more. I wish I had an answer. That is heavy, but. Um, I'm honored, um, as heavy as that is, to get to do that. And it seems crazy, um, but it's what makes me feel connected to my people, is to, to carry some of their burden, And I, I never take it lightly when I get to do that. When you're willing to step into another person's pain with them, even when you don't have the answer, even when there's nothing you can do other than pray for them, um, real relationship is formed in that space. When you're, when you're willing to go there. Um, it cuts through a lot of the BS that we tend to hold up between one another. Um, when you when you go to where somebody's really hurting, um, so don't be afraid to enter your coworker's mess when they're going through something. You know, don't don't do the thing where you're like, ooh, somebody needs a minute. No, step into that with them. Follow their energy. Like, what's going on? Why, what, tell me. What's happening? Are you thinking I do anything? Like, step into their pain. Don't be afraid to meet your neighbor right where they're hurting and talk to them. Don't be afraid to go um, deep with your kid's best friend when they need someone to talk to. I think uh, the, the moments that are created there are bonds that can affect the entire gospel narrative. I mean, Naomi and Ruth meet each other in, in pain and it forms this bond that is so tight they won't be separated. And I think that's important. So, how do we respond to this? As we go deeper into the story, we're going to find um, Ruth participating in and benefiting from all of the liturgies and rituals and practices of the people of God um, and eventually meeting her Savior. Uh, and, um, and the thing I love about this chapter is that it happens out there. She does come in. She does come back by the end of the chapter. She's with the people of God, and she's part of all that liturgy. We're going to get into that next week, what, what the kinds of things that were in place to take care of them and, and why it was so important to be back in Israel. We're going to talk about that next week. But I love that this part of it happens out there. And I think all of us need that to remember that that a lot of the ministry doesn't happen in this room. It happens out there. The way we treat people out there and the relationships we form out there and the people we meet and bless and love on out there is important. The beautiful commitment that Ruth makes to Naomi and the bond of love that they have that, that, that led them to a place where they did life together happened in Moab. Out there. Um, we talked last week about that list from Ephesians 4 humility, gentleness, patience, grace, peace. And we talked about this list in the context of maintaining unity in, um, in the church. But please know that these virtues are also essential in dealing with non believers. Dealing with people that you run into at work, people you run into in your neighborhood, that we be humble and gentle and, and patient. Maybe even more essential. I mean, please don't. Buy into the current mindset that the other is the enemy. Don't like right now our world is so polarizing and it's and it's it's dragging us um, into this you know divided way of not just living because we are divided by so many things right now, but but looking at the other person like they're the bad guy and we cannot get into that. There are only two types of people in the world. There are only two types of people in the world. Those who believe in Jesus and they are on your team, one body with you cannot deny that. We read last week that God said this is what is. There is only one church, one body. But those are the people we love on because they're ours. And the other type of people are those who don't believe in Jesus and it's our job to be loving to them and bless them and kind to them and and invite them in through our through our light and our love and our life. Those are the only two types of people. And, and uh, the beautiful thing is no matter what team they're on, you pretty much treat them the same. Love God, love people. Jesus narrowed it down pretty much that much. You're either loving on them because they're on your team or you're loving on them because you want them to be on your team. But our job is to be light and life and, and inviting to people. And yeah, we, we war against personalities and powers and we fight darkness, yes, but the people we love on, the people we, we treat well. Following up on our five weeks of church unity where we stress heavily how important it is to love fellow believers, and now we're diving straight into a story where Naomi the Jew and Ruth the Gentile built this deep and lasting relationship that ultimately perpetuates the Messianic line. Because Ruth becomes one of the team and, and it ultimately leads all the way to Jesus. That teaches me that, that honestly, um, I, there's no reason for me to think in terms of who's in and who's out. I'm supposed to love people. That's my job. It's that simple. I love it. In this story, Ruth is going to meet um, and Mary, her Savior. Um, and it only happens because she formed a real and deep relationship with one of the people of God. Because, because she got connected to one of the people of God, it changed her destiny. Um, no gimmicks, no bait and switch, no strategic evangelism. No, this is just two people doing life together and, and having a relationship together. Just real human friendship. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit would empower us to do the same. Let's